welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 75. Great program, as always. I like to toot my horn right at the beginning because who else is going to toot it? You know what I'm saying? Uh, Counterpunch. Gotta make my pitch, as I always do. I think it's vital at this particular time, in this particular place, in the United States, in the era of Trump. We have so many uh, um, you know, fronts in this ongoing conflict, and one of them is media and alternative media. And increasingly, we're seeing alternative media under attack, whether it's this like neo-McCarthyism or whether it's just pure economics or whatever it may be. We need to support our independent media outlets, particularly on the left, because obviously in the era of Trump, it's increasingly important that we have these kind of outlets. And I think Counterpunch is one of the most important. Uh, If you agree with me, one of the ways that you can support Counterpunch is with a uh, subscription to the print magazine. It's an excellent, excellent publication that you get uh, 10 times a year, so almost monthly, but you know, who's counting? And, uh, you know, keep it by your toilet, keep it by your kitty litter, keep it by your bedside, whatever you want to do, wherever you want to read it. It's excellent articles, each and every issue, great columns from Jeff Sinclair and Josh Frank and many other contributors as well. And of course, also Counterpunch's website. Go to the website, donate to Counterpunch using the PayPal feature, picking up the phone, calling Becky in the office in California where it's likely warmer and nicer than where I am. Um, You know, do whatever you can. I think it's important. Take one cup of coffee from Starbucks, cut it out of your plans, and instead donate that money to Counterpunch. You'll feel good about it. Um, Also, of course, spreading the word on this show. Really appreciate those of you who do that. Positive reviews on iTunes, on Google Play Store, wherever it may be. Uh, Spreading it around to your friends, to your coworkers, to the people you know who are going to respond negatively. Uh, Incite them, fight them, do whatever you want. It's great. I appreciate all of it. Um, And then, of course, also the current issue of Counterpunch. Want to plug my little article there. Donald Trump and the Triumph of White Identity Politics. I think there are a number of facets to this story that still need to be examined, and I'm very happy to have somebody on the program with me this week who, at least in part, is going to touch on some of that, including his own experiences. It is the one, the only, dare I say, the inimitable Arun Gupta. Arun Gupta, you all know him, you all love him, but of course, let me <laughs> let me just let me just uh, read his little bio here because I think it's important. I didn't say little to you know to to, to make it diminutive or anything. Uh, Arun Gupta uh, was an editor of Guardian News Weekly, The Independent, The Occupied Wall Street Journal. He's written for dozens of publications, including Washington Post, The Nation, Salon, The Guardian, uh, In These Times, The Progressive, and The Raw Story, and of course this little thing called Counterpunch. He is a graduate of the French Culinary Institute and author of the upcoming book, Bacon as a Weapon of Mass Destruction, a Junk Food-Loving Chef's Inquiry into Taste. Who wouldn't want to read that book? Arun Gupta, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. It's great to be on, especially, wow, what an introduction. I'd love to meet this guy. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Uh, Well, you might eat those words. We'll see. Um, All right. (laughs) So let us begin. Um, there's so much to there, there's so much to discuss. It's almost like kind of I'm not even sure where to where to jump into this. But maybe we can start by you giving us your assessment of these first few weeks of the Trump presidency. Um, what have you What have you observed? What are your initial reactions? And are Are you taken aback by how it's developed? Do, were, was this something that you felt was predictable? How do you read what's happened? 
Oh, I, I, I am not surprised in the least. And, and you know, I'm going to point to something um, that uh, I, I wrote in, in the fall. Uh, it may have been on, on Counterpunch. It, it was, uh, as I was saying, uh, it, it was all over the place. I said the, uh, the left is not taking uh, the threat of Trump uh, seriously, and he needs to be uh, defeated. So uh, the only thing maybe that I was like, of, of, and, you know, I'm not even that surprised by it. I was like a little surprised that is like when he threatened to invade Mexico. I'm like, I'm like, okay, whoa, this guy is like, you know, he's, he's definitely out there, but it's, it's a lot of like bluster, you know? Um, so I really have not been, uh, surprised by anything because I was covering the guy for last year. I was going to his rallies, you know, I saw him speak numerous times. Um, I mean, I did, you know, I live in New York city, so I've been, uh, uh, familiar with, uh, Cheeto Jesus for, uh, decades now. Uh, but it's it's nothing uh it's all in character uh anyone who acts surprised was not paying attention well i think that i i think that that's true um and i will and one of the things that i've gone through uh since trump's uh victory on election night is sort of my own process of self-reflection because i would definitely put myself in the category of people on the left who didn't take trump as seriously as perhaps we should have this is not to say that you know that means we absolve hillary clinton or or uphold her as some kind of uh, you know beacon of light and justice but uh certainly i was of the opinion that 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 hillary clinton was a lock essentially with wall street with big capital behind her with the military industrial complex and certainly the neocon establishment etc and um, I I certainly put myself in the category of people who underestimated the social and also political and uh, financial forces that really brought Trump and, and foisted him upon us and so uh, yeah guilty as charged <laughs> well I mean look I, that's a that's a different question about like uh, him winning uh, everyone was surprised he was surprised he won uh, there, there are a, a couple of things we can go back to on election night you know Trump is very much all about the theater one they deliberately chose a small ballroom uh, because they didn't want uh, because he was convinced that he had, had lost secondly when he came out and I, I stayed up and, and watched um, there was not even a balloon drop, right? That is uh, the simplest thing you can arrange for. Um, they just had like some opera music or, or, or something. And on the other side, the Clinton campaign had rented out the Javits Center, which has a glass ceiling, right, to yeah. signify that she has broken the glass ceiling. And they were going to drop fake shards of glass on the audience when she came out for her uh, uh, victory speech. And and so it's just like the Clinton campaign planned for everything except how to win the campaign, uh, whereas uh, Trump and company, like no one had any idea. I read one article saying like the only ones who thought he was going to win were his uh, data team. Um, but beyond that, no one thought he was going to win. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that's interesting about how this all developed, and I wrote a piece, uh, and people who are regular listeners of the show, they're like, stop plugging your old shit. Well, I'm going to anyway. Like, March of 2016, uh, President Trump 
question mark U.S. war machine rolls on. And I, I, I while I underestimated Trump's ability to win, even going back, you know, a, a year ago, it was clear to me that there were certainly political forces and financial forces that were aligning behind him and that, you know, either you could say were hedging on a potential Trump victory or were more or less uh, convinced that, that Hillary was so weak that he could win. And obviously we see that with Steve Nuchin uh, backing him going back more than a year. We see that with a, with a number of other neocons who jumped ship and got behind Trump. So, you know, there were indications that the, that the establishment was taking him seriously, but I think that it's only in hindsight that those are really coming into stark relief. Well, I, I think one of the, the great things, uh, and I will say great, tremendous, amazing, you know, unbelievable things uh, about Trump's victory is everyone has to uh, question um, and reexamine what they took for granted and their orthodoxies. And I think um, no kind of, the left is tiny and disorganized, um, but uh, usually it also has by far and away the best analysis of, of what is going on politically, socially, economically. That's why there still is a left. It, it, it has a powerful analysis. And so I still think that the left has um, a lot to offer in, in the uh, age of Trump more than any other kind of ideological force. But the left also, I think people on the left need to re-examine uh, things that they've been getting wrong. One, and a big one, is that the ruling class is undifferentiated. Um, so yes, there were maybe elements here and there of the ruling class um, that did line up with Trump, but in general, you know, we, we can go through this stuff, right? She had Silicon Valley in her corner. Other yeah. than Peter Thiel, she had Hollywood in her corner. She had uh, the investment banks. There were a few fringe, uh, you know, billionaires. There's over, I, I think there's like 1,400 billionaires in the world, you know, like uh, um, the Mercers in particular, Adelson, you know, uh, gave some money. Um, you know, there was some you know, a few parts of the national security establishment, but the overwhelmingly uh, people were either neutral or lining up behind Hillary Clinton. Like there's one stat about how of Fortune 100 CEOs, something I think like 17 donated to Hillary Clinton's campaign and not one donated to Donald Trump's campaign. So, but What's interesting about what we've seen, you know, let, let's talk about what we're seeing. So the, the the biggest question with Trump, and it's it's to put it in political economy terms, which I'll explain, is is he going to disrupt global value chains? This, this, this is what Leo Panitch, the way he puts it, I think one of the just uh, uh, most brilliant political economists in the English language world today. And by that he means, is, is Trump going to take actions that disrupt the supply chains that capitalists depend upon, right? So much of his rhetoric is about that, that, that we're going to introduce tariffs, that we're going to renegotiate trade deals, that China is a currency manipulator, you know, on and on and on. You know, when they they were talking about, like, introducing some sort of, like, 20 percent, like, import tax style thing um, very briefly, and then they walked it back on Mexico. 
The problem with that is, is take an uh, automobile, right? You can, uh, automobiles are filled with electronic components electronic components and so gm may be like building those electronic components in mexico but the subcomponents could come from you know korea the parts could come from uh china um they're they're then you know assembled uh into the component in mexico but that's then shipped to a u.s factory where the uh automobile is is finally put together so where exactly on the supply chain are you, are you going to put the tariff and and ultimately you end up taxing like a US based company instead of a Mexican company the problem with these supply chains is they become so complex and so intertwined that trump's simplistic rhetoric um is can't grapple with, with, you know, just trying to untangle, uh, you know, th this uh, complicated uh, world of uh, capitalist uh, material relations. And, and so, but this is the real question, like, is he going to disrupt this value chain? This is what we see with immigration. This is why you got like Silicon Valley was originally playing nice, right? They came to that round table that he had at Trump Towers. Um, and But once he started um, threatening uh, the visas, that's when you see them uh, starting to push back, especially because Silicon Valley is so dependent of, of, upon this uh, global labor pool, um, especially uh, uh, from Asia. And, you know, there's now talk about like, oh, they're going to crack down on H1B visas. That is in particular what the, the tech industry uh, really needs um, uh, to get the supplies, the, the supplies of engineers. And yes, they exploit it. There, there's no doubt about that. But nonetheless, once Trump starts, you know, if he really starts to interrupt these uh, global value chains, it's going to have just huge uh, economic uh, repercussions uh, for for the worse. You know, I think we can almost consider this like, uh, you know, something like the matrix, right? You know, we're all plugged in in the in so many different ways. If you start to just remove plugs without having some sort of very careful backup plan about how you transition, uh, you know, you might start to uh, lose uh, uh, the whole economy. You know, it, it can start to really spiral out of control. And the other question related to this is, are there national, uh, are there bourgeoisies who want to accumulate within their own national territory? And there really are not at least ones that have a lot of weight. Now, what's interesting about Trump is we can see these divisions in the ruling class, right? So we can see how um, Hollywood is still against him, how Silicon Valley is still against him. These are kind of the cognitive, uh, creative in industries. As far as Wall Street goes, he's basically handed it over um, to uh, Goldman Sachs, government Sachs, to try and uh, get them uh, in his corner. But interestingly, who he is lining up with are these sectors that that can do very well accumulating within the geographical sphere of the United States. So this includes the defense industry, obviously because they're dependent upon government contracts. The energy industry, the energy industry is worldwide, but there's a lot they can, can 
uh, accumulate in terms of U.S. Uh, uh, terrestrial and you know m marine areas. Um, the construction industry, obviously, where Trump comes from, infrastructure projects, um, that is a, a huge source of uh, domestic uh, capital and and accumulation, and and the real estate industry also where where Trump comes from. So he has kind of lined up um, these uh, sectors with him, but they are not, um, they do not have uh, the power of, uh, you know, other sectors, right? You know, in terms of the, the tech industry, you know, that is a much bigger industry. So he can find bourgeoisie who support this uh, kind of national national economic program, but not a, a bourgeoisie that is is so powerful that it can uh, base it, it's going to or rather it's going to come at the cost of of, of these other capitalists. So we, we we see maybe the start of a bit of an inner inner class uh, conflict um, among the capitalists, which is interesting. How far it gets though uh, is an open question. You know, it's an interesting analysis. One thing that I want to say is uh, not necessarily a counter counter argument, but something to, I think, consider all of those industries that you talked about, including, I mean, we're talking massive hundreds of billions of dollars, the military industrial complex, of course, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, big oil, etc. All of these are massive industries, but all of them are dependent on and really underwritten by Wall Street and finance capital. And Wall Street mm -hmm. is in many ways the 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 linchpin of all of this. So if you breakdown in uh, you know careful analysis of the proposed uh, infrastructure plan at least the early glimpses that we've had uh, that were put together by you know like Wilbur Ross uh, incoming commerce secretary and their buddy at the UC University of California Irvine whose name escapes me now but uh, who put together this plan if you look at it carefully it is essentially a bailout for the uh, sectors of the economy that haven't yet had their bailout so the construction industry, the real estate developers, all of these private sectors that unlike, uh, you know, certain industries like banking, like automotive, like automotive industry, haven't yet had this massive bailout. And essentially, that looks like what this plan really is, is that's pretty much the analysis that Michael Hudson is putting forward, that essentially, this would be the 99% underwriting the 1% through these uh, public private partnerships, through this bond schemes and other things that are essentially essentially making it so that 85% of the money is going to go pretty much into the pocket of the wealthiest people at the top of these industries. And these construction projects are only going to be those that are profit generating. So you're not going to necessarily see an expansion of public transportation or of, you know, vital infrastructure unless it can be, you know, uh, turned into a profit. So I think that while I understand what you're saying on the one hand, on the other hand, you have to ask the question, is this, is this uh, sort of roundabout way of doing another Wall Street bailout? Um, it's, it's, you know, I, I don't think it's, they're talking about a hundred billion over 10 years. You know, that, that that's the thing. Like in, in globally, there are really, um, only a few, there, there are a few massive sectors. So these are, are healthcare, 
uh, technology, uh, agriculture and food, um, uh, real estate and construction and energy, right? And and so it, it turns out that the defense industry is actually a pretty small part of the global economy. Now, it's disproportionate in the U.S. because we account for such a, a huge part. But even, even within the U.S., it, it's still, you know, the uh, entire, like, um, even if you include all the various, you know, like, you know, Department of Energy and NASA and Veterans Affairs and, you know, on top of, of the Pentagon, you're still at most talking about uh, 5% of, of GDP. And it, it still pales in, in comparison to these other industries, right? And so, but that's still close to like a trillion dollars a year. So when we're talking about the infrastructure bill, we're talking $100 billion a year. Of course, that's a lot of money, but that's one half of 1% of GDP. It's, it's, it's not that big of a mover. Well, as as far as as far as Trump's team sees it, though, their their uh, idealized vision of this plan, for instance, is a hundred billion dollars as a small fraction of what they what they call stimulating private sector growth. So if you look at the plan that they put that they put out there, um, essentially they envision over ten years something. I want to uh, don't quote me on the number exactly, but it was over a trillion dollars. You know, so I mean, we are talking about at least from from their perspective, a massive stimulus. But that stimulus is, of course, basically free money to the wealthiest developers in the construction industry and so forth, so that they can then, you know, create these projects that are going to generate massive wealth for them. So it to me, at least, it's part of the continuing, you know, transfer of wealth into the into an increasingly smaller percentage of hands. I, I, I completely agree. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. That's what I was saying. It's a hundred billion a year over ten years, right? We agree on that. It's 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 a trillion dollars, but it's it's over ten years. I mean, look, it's 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 why the big banks get into stuff like microfinance and and you know uh, municipal and and school loans and and um, you know these like prepaid debit cards. You know, they're looking to make money any single which way they can. I'm, I'm just saying the scale of it. It though is is not that big when you consider how big the and uh, the finance sector that was the other big area that I left out when you consider how enormous you know when we go back to the uh, uh, meltdown in 2008 Goldman Sachs alone and this is nearly a decade ago was at 1.1 trillion dollars in debt. And so that that gives us a sense of the, of the scale of of the you know just this one in investment bank. So sure, they're they're going to you know stick their you know blood funnel into you know as as Matt Taibbi put it into any you know uh, uh, source of money and and suck it um, as much as they can. Um, the in, the infrastructure bill though I don't think is is really that significant. Also, it's not. Um, uh, uh, going anywhere, at least from what I've been reading, because uh, the Democrats uh, were willing to play ball with Trump, but they want a very different type of infrastructure bill. And that's also, um, you know, they wanted to have this infrastructure bank. They wanted to fund it through existing government programs. And there's no way that Trump's going to get this passed without uh, Democratic uh, support, because you, you have the fanatical um, true believers in uh, what is it, the Freedom Caucus, the Tea Party uh, Caucus, who 
are just pure ideologues. Uh, so they're not going to uh, sign up for this. So and and yes, you're exactly right that the infrastructure bill, all it would do is basically transfer money to projects that would have happened anyway. Um, it, it's not actually going to stimulate any, any new construction. It, it is a transfer of, of, of wealth um, to the ruling class. But it will also it'll again, it'll pale in comparison to what he's trying to push through in terms of 8.6 trillion dollars in tax cuts right that is nearly 10 that's a magnitude bigger um, than even his his planned infrastructure program yeah and I think that they kind of go hand in hand because of course the the, the tax breaks are going to benefit uh, that tiny layer of people that are going to benefit from this although to be fair I think that there are certainly uh, petit bourgeois forces and, and, and small business owners and others who are obviously in favor of that it's going to benefit them but they're really I, I don't think they're uh, much in terms of the economic impact although they are certainly a part of his uh, I guess what we could call the voting block or his based that really uh, put him into power. So maybe we could shift gears and talk a little bit about that because this is something that is continuing to be uh, discussed and and analyzed. And uh, I think at least for some analysts, they're using a a framework that I don't think is necessarily correct, but I do want to get your take on this. So you've traveled the country, you've been to these rallies, you've you've been to some of these places that were heavily, uh, um, you know, responsible for bringing Trump into the White House or for putting him into the White House. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, What is your what is your analysis of the uh, political or socioeconomic forces that really were brought to bear? And, and, and express themselves in Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I feel I feel like you know more electrons have been uh, wasted trying to explain the the rise of Trump that are probably circulating in the sun right now, um, and it's actually pretty damn simple in 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 terms of his rise. The the, the starting point is first of all race and class are in completely inseparable in the American experience. So all these arguments about it's racism, no, it's class, you know, miss the point. It, it is both. But how they interact um, is, is very important to understand. You know, it's it's often been said, and and I completely agree that the uh, original sins of of America are, are Native ge- uh, American genocide and uh, the chattel slavery of of Africans. So, and that is uh, essential to the rise of capital. The Native American genocide genocide is about primitive capital accumulation. You know, the land and resources. Uh, the slavery is about wealth. I, at one point, I believe on the of the Civil War, something like at least a third, maybe 40% of the capital uh, in this country, the wealth, was tied up in black bodies. I think the two richest states um, on the eve of the Civil War were Alabama and Mississippi. You know, no one would mistake them for being the richest states uh, now. So this is how American uh, capitalism uh, uh, came into being. Now, what really allowed Trump, you know, there's obviously to come uh, uh, to, to where he is. Obviously, we can point to all sorts of forces, you know, just the destruction of public education, uh, the rise of uh, celebrity media, um, you know, the, the dumbing down of uh, political discourse, social media. But but there, there are really two much more important factors that all that is laid upon the representation. One is the right wing's 
50-year project, um, this uh, racist project, you know, starting with with Goldwater, that I think is uh, where we can really say that's where things start to, uh, we see this right-wing project uh, come into being. And he ran, um, you know, opposing uh, the Civil Rights Act, opposing uh, Medicare and uh, Medicaid. Um, and then uh, in 1992, the abandonment of working class politics uh, by the Clintons, um, you know, that their their strategy is, you know, we're not going to, Bill Clinton said no one is, uh, you know, can say that I'm soft on crime or, or soft on, on welfare. And he ran as a mild Keynesian. Um, he called for a $50 a $50 billion stimulus, um, but once in office, uh, their their primary uh, uh, purpose, economic strategy became how do we placate uh, the bond markets. Uh, but equally important, um, the Clinton administration, um, you know, Ron Brown as Commerce Secretary, um, the very, you know, uh, Larry Summers and, and Robert Rubin, uh, even Robert Reich, um, some people have claimed, um, they what they went about was I uh, bringing one billion uh, workers um, into the global workforce. That that was what happens with the fall of the Soviet Union and the opening up of China, that you open up uh, this massive reserve of labor around the world. And that's what NAFTA comes into. So let's fast forward to the present. I was just in Indianapolis. Uh, I went to the three factories where Trump said he was going to save job. two of, jobs. Two of them were carrier plants. This is a company that's owned by a defense contractor, United Technology Carrier, makes air conditioners, heaters, ventilation units for the home. Uh, then there's a second corporate, and the, the carrier has a plant in Indianapolis and Huntington um, where they said they're going to move the jobs down to Monterey, Mexico. Then there's a th second company, Rexnord, that is based in Indianapolis, where they're also coincidentally moving the jobs down to Monterey, Mexico, and they make uh, industrial and agricultural ball bearings. I met with um, 17 workers at the three companies, had extensive one-on-one uh, -on -one interviews uh, with them, and these are all unionized workers, United Steel Workers and International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Half of them voted for Donald Trump, union workers. Um, and so Donald Trump said he was going to save the carrier jobs. He did end up going to Indianapolis. Um, and, you know, there was this kind of like smoke and mirrors where he claimed he ended up uh, saving far more jobs than he did. He did end up saving 730 jobs because he threatened the carrier's parent company. Like, you know, that's what everyone suspects, that he threatened their $6 billion in government contracts if they didn't keep um, this plant there. So he saved 730 jobs, and over 1,600 jobs are, are being lost at these three plants. So uh, eight workers told me they s voted for Donald Trump, um, all eight workers are still losing their jobs. And I, I talked to them, you know, right around the time of the inauguration. And uh, so what do you think of him now? All of them still supported Donald Trump. And, you know, one of them, I just like at first, I was kind of like, you know, flabbergasted. And one of them told me, look, did Donald Trump save all the jobs? No. Did he save some of the jobs? Yeah. Did he do more than the last guy? Yep. 
Don Zierig, he's the um, uh, United Steelworker Unit President at Rexnord. He told me, I didn't vote for Trump. I, I voted for the candidate who, who lost. And then he said, you know, Donald Trump wasn't even president, and he saved those jobs. Why couldn't Obama do that? And when you talk to them, it starts to become hard to disagree with them. Over and over, they they would bring up one thing. Now it it isn't it's more of a shorthand, but they would bring up NAFTA, 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 NAFTA. That's what they were saying. It's just like these jobs are fleeing because of NAFTA. Now it may be they may have been technically fleeing because of the WTO or trade deals with South Korea and China, but NAFTA is the shorthand, right? The workers would rattle off the names of these corporations that used to be around Indiana. You know, oh, there used to be this GM plant. There used to be this Pratt and Whitney plant making uh, aircraft engines. There used to be this Alcoa plant smelter. There used to be Pile speakers making stereo speakers. There used to be Navistar making uh, uh, auto parts. There used to be this Ford factory. And it was like they're rattling off the names of former baseball stars. And they're all gone. A number of these workers have had, uh, this is the second time they've been at a factory where it's shutting down and being uh, offshore. I've talked to workers uh, in the Midwest, who that's happened to them three times, where they, they'd work at uh, a steel factory, shut down offshore. Then they go to an auto parts plant, shut down offshore. Then they go to an auto manufacturer, shut down and, and offshore. And when you talk to them, you start to realize they have a really keen sense of their own self-interest. And this is opposed to Paul, the Paul Krugman types. Right after the election, he wrote an article said, the white working class votes against its own interests. That is a load of hooey. Um, they have a very sharp sense of, of, of their own self-interest. Now, ironically, one of the workers I met with, and, and you know, even among this small group, right, you can't make any scientific conclusions, but among these 17 workers, you would also see the gender and race breakdown. Like none of the African-American workers uh, voted for Trump and, and fewer female workers uh, uh, voted uh, for Donald Trump than the, the male workers. So I met uh, Lakita Clark. I went to her home in the um, kind of these rundown uh, suburbs of uh, uh, northwest Indianapolis, and she was uh, at home with her four um, uh, kids. They were splayed around the living room, each on their own electronic device, you know, kind of the modern American family alone together. And I caught up with her before she was going to Bible study. And she works at Carrier, and Donald, and she has one of the jobs that's being saved. And uh, she, um, when it got to the question of who she liked, you know, she's like, I, I, you know, I, there's no way I can support Trump. He promotes violence. You know, uh, what type of role model is he? And she's, it's like, I voted for Hillary Clinton, but I really like Bernie Sanders. And she's like, I, I voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary. And then she said, you know, um, I voted for Hillary Clinton, and if Hillary Clinton won, I'd be out of a job. So the one worker I talked to who, who said they voted against uh, their self-interest voted for Hillary Clinton. 
Um, and, you know, it's, it's, this is, I think, I'll just say also as an aside, this is, I think, something that happens far too rarely um, in left media and is also something that people uh, need to, I think, wake up to, is um, going out there and actually talking to people and listening to them and letting them and just listening and hearing what they have to say. Um, you, you find that people are often pretty sharp. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who have wacky opinions if, if you keep talking to them. Most people have some wacky opinions, but they have a sharp sense of their own self-interest and they understand what's going on in the world. And, and what these workers see is the Democrats have screwed them over for the last 25 years and they're drowning and someone comes along and throws them a life preserver, Donald Trump, and they're willing to grab onto that life preserver because they're drowning and, and desperate. So it's not a surprise that they voted for him and it's not a surprise that they continue to support him because they're, look, look, give him a chance. You know, He's not even in office, you know, let him let's see what he can do. Um, and it's also the same thing with Obama, right? Uh, he, Mr. Anti-War President, you know, Nobel Peace Prize winner who uh, bombed seven countries at once Ill illegally and, and liberals are crying because he's uh, out of office eight years later, even though he betrayed pretty much everything uh, he said he was going to do. So we, we shouldn't, like, uh, I think, be uh, dumping on uh, Trump supporters uh, because uh, uh, he's not fulfilling what he, he said he's going to do it's it's natural that people will continue to support him for a while and the real issue is going out there and talking to him and figuring out how to bring them uh organically to left politics well i, I would agree with that um my my question and i guess uh embedded in this question is an argument that i've made that i i don't think is getting enough attention um the question i have is when you say that these that these workers, which you which you readily uh, uh, noted, and I think obviously this is probably intuitive for a lot of people, did break down along racial lines, along gender lines, and so forth. If you if you ask the question, are their perspectives on their own economic self interests what drove them to support Trump, or is that part of a broader, uh, let's call it sociological or, or psychological, mass psychological trend uh, that is really encapsulated in Make America Great Again? In other words, it's not Make America Great Again by keeping factories open. It's Make America Great Again by restoring all of the aspects of American society, including the whiteness, including the 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 you know uh, um, patriarchal dominance, including all of these things, that is what makes America great again. And I think that it's part of a broader identity question that these that that, that the white workers were, of course, voting in their economic self interest as they perceived them, but also in what they perceive, at least a lot of them perceive to be their own, uh, let's call it cultural self interest. And one of the things that I think is underplayed is the question of white identity. There is no such thing as white identity, never has been until now. Think about it. Whatever before Donald Trump united the uh, the Irish Catholic in New York City with the Southern Baptist in Alabama, with the Methodist in Kansas, with whomever else you want to name, they, they had very little in common up until Trump. And now there is this question 
of are we an oppressed people? Are white people in the United States oppressed? And I've seen this expressed by many people, including people I've talked to in my own life who support a Trump, who are not unemployed, who are doing rather well, who have pensions, who are retiring, and so forth. They say that their country, that it's under attack from political correctness, from liberals, and whatever, whatever, whatever. In other words, is the economic component what drove this, or is that one part of a broader discussion? So, I, I, that's that's a great question. Here, here's the uh, way that I would uh, answer it. And this is actually something I wrote uh, in 2008, right after Obama was elected, weeks afterward. And it, it, because it was like a, I was editing the Independent, and you know we really opposed him. You know, and not that it had any difference. We were just trying to point out to people that, um, or not opposed, but we we're just trying to point out, like, look, he's he's going to come in to reconstitute neoliberalism. That is really what his presidency was about. I did hold out a glimmer of hope that at least uh, there was a slight bit of self-interest uh, in terms of he had this huge mandate, he had a supermajority in the, in the Senate that they would consolidate, they would at least act in their own naked self-interest as a party. And the way to do that was to create five million, at least five million Obama jobs. And so Indiana um, in 2016, Donald Trump won it by nearly 20 points. This is a state that's 84% white. It's, it's, it's been that way uh, for about the last decade. Obama won it in, in 2008. Okay, so 20 point difference. Um, sudden, a third of the population did not suddenly become racist in, in the last eight years. If Obama had created 5 million Obama jobs, if he had gotten up and said, we are going to have government as employer of last resort, and God knows that there was, there's plenty of jobs that can be done, you know, rebuilding uh, sewage and, and water work, schools, parks, you know, uh, you, you can imagine, you can create all sorts of productive work, you know, weatherization, um, they did a little of that. If you had five million Obama jobs, you would have, and if it was spread among the working class, um, you would have plenty of white workers who still might be racist, but they would be like, I, and the ones who voted in 2008 for Obama in Indiana, I'm sure there are plenty of people who had racist attitudes, but they were also saying, let's give this guy a chance after the Republicans have screwed up royally and they bought into the Hopi changey thing. If they had an Obama job today, they would be like, well, okay, yeah, whatever. Maybe he's a um, you know Kenyan-born Muslim, but I don't care. I got an Obama job, or my partner has a, an Obama job, or my mom has an Obama job, or my best friend or brother has an Obama job, right? So their material interests would make them, and this is a concept from the uh, financial markets, would make them discount uh, um, other information. It's called discounting the news, where you, you're incorporating, where the market incorporates uh, uh, sentiment in, into 
a stock price. So bad news may not move a stock if, if that sentiment is, it already exists out there. So in, in other words, if their material conditions had actually been taken care of, and that's what Obama was elected to do, was to uh, uh, not just uh, reconstitute the power of the ruling class, right? The, the reason workers voted for him was because they were hoping and they encouraged this for a new New Deal or a Green New Deal. If he had done that, I think you'd find plenty of people who, yeah, they may still have these racist attitudes, but they're not as susceptible. But when they see their communities being destroyed, when they see this massive outflow of jobs, when you start to see this rise in um, uh, uh, you know, the death rates to the point where life expectancy is dropping for middle-aged, white working class Americans, that's extraordinary. In the industrialized world, you only ever see drops in life expectancy during wartime, right? So this is evidence of, of just a brutal reality for a significant segment of the population. Not everyone, but a significant segment. So they see this, they are going to be more susceptible to other types of narratives, to racist narratives. Then you compound it with someone like Hillary Clinton, whose uh, campaign was basically screw the white working class. Remember Ed Randell, uh, the former governor of uh, Pennsylvania, saying, oh, you know, for every uh, 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 white blue collar worker we lose, you know, that's okay. We'll gain uh, two um, uh, Republican leaning uh, women in the suburbs. And you know what? They lost all those white working class uh, voters and they didn't win any more of those uh, uh, Republican yeah. uh, leaning women. When you when you basically say uh, screw you to one third of the entire public, that's what the white working class is. How are you going to win? I mean, I, I think, you know, unfortunately, all of us failed uh, on the left to do a better job of, of going out to these areas and talking to these people. And, you know, it can be done. It should have been done. Um, uh, you know, uh, we, ne- we need more good reporting and, and less pontificating. I think that I think that what you're saying is true, and I don't want to oversimplify what what uh, many people um, are suggesting. For instance, when Democrats and liberals say this is a, this is all about racism, this is of course uh, no different than them saying this is all about Russia hacking. You know what I mean? In other words, it's mm-hmm. any 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 number of excuses to explain away uh, a stunning collapse, jo- you know, uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, as it were. You know, but what I'm what I'm getting at, and and what I would like to explore and I know we got to go to a break here Jesus uh, what, what I'm getting at though is the question of how all of these economic struggles and and the reaction against neoliberalism and the decades of decimating the communities how all of that is expressed what sociological phenomena we're seeing that is in in effect the expression of all of that because you know for for a billionaire from new york city to become the embodiment of the working class is of course begs the question, well, there's obviously something more here. And, you know, uh, I, I read a study, um, now I can't remember the author, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, people have to find my article in Counterpunch to, to, to find this, but uh, they were talking about this question uh, of the concept of entitativity. It's a funny word to say, but the creation of a cohesive entity 
entity and and that entitativity i think that is really what we're witnessing in this last year or two the creation of a white identity and it's rooted in this notion of oppression that we are oppressed we're oppressed economically as of course is obvious but we're oppressed culturally we can't celebrate our religion the way we want to we can't you know speak and tell racist jokes the way we want to or you know slap a secretary on the butt the way we want to or whatever it may be there's any number of examples where they feel that the country they had that they owned an ownership I think is important that that's been snatched away from them and it's not just working class people this is of course middle managers and bureaucrats and small business owners and whatever you know whatever other groups you want to you want to point to all of these people supported Trump by you know in in overwhelming numbers Trump beat Clinton in 85% of the most affluent communities in this country these aren't people who are struggling these are people who are doing damn fine and they all voted for Trump too and the question is why it's not because because they lost their jobs. It's because Trump is the manifestation of their feelings over these last few decades. Well, I, I, I think I think you're right, but I would just say that this goes much further back. This is actually an an old story, um, you know. So the the whole like Sunbelt conservatism of of Barry Goldwater, like if you go uh, back and. Uh, 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 Rick Perlstein, uh, the journalist, he's um, done uh, uh, good works on kind of this trajectory of, of Goldwater, then Nixon, then uh, Reagan. Um, the, their whole thing was this rugged individualism and, and that they were put upon by the federal government, you know, all these like, and they were, you know, burdening them um, with all these like uh, laws and uh, uh, taxes. Um, and of course, you you have to just be utterly delusional to to believe that because there is no place in the country, um, except maybe Las Vegas, that is completely constructed by the state than uh, Arizona. Right? This first of all. Uh, you had to have the genocide of uh, the Native Americans, and that happens in the late 19th century. But then you need, uh, so you need the U.S. military. Then you have the state coming in and, and building roads and electricity and, and sewage. Uh, you have uh, the defense industry is located uh, uh, out there. You have uh, all the mortgage, uh, um, you know, Fannie Mae and, and, and Freddie Mac. And this idea of like rugged individualism is, is of course, completely absurd and and so this is a constant um feature of of the this like a uh, uh white resentment and it, it goes back many decades that one um that they are put upon um even as they expect uh, all these uh, uh benefits and i think you know, so now the interesting thing about talking to these workers, again, we shouldn't extrapolate too much because it's only 17 of them, but the Trump supporters, nearly all of them like Bernie Sanders better. You know, that that says a lot. A lot of them really liked Bernie Sanders because they they were like, he stood for the, he's been by the working man for the last, uh, you know, for 20 years. And for them, Trump was more kind of like a middle finger to the system. You know, people were, yeah. some were saying they, they wanted to upset the apple cart. Yeah. You know, he's the only one talking about it. 
Um, you know, there's also the the really excellent piece by Nancy Fraser and Dissent uh, on progressive neoliberalism. It sounds like an oxymoron, but it does a very good way of explaining what the ideology of Clinton was. Right. Again, it's this kind of cognitive and creative capital. Silicon Valley, Hollywood and, and the financial system tied to this uh, social inclusion based on identity. You know, the Sheryl Sandberg uh, lean in politics. So we'll have a ruling class that's like ethnically, racially, sexually diverse. Uh, but it's it and, you know, that kind of gives us a transference, you know, that, oh, you know, if, if you're a woman, you can uh, take a, a measure of satisfaction and, you know, this um, mediated participation in, in, in the power that the, this is something that transfers to your own life. But you can't eat symbols. And I think people were also tired of that after uh, the Obama years. And, it, it, you know, something like um, I saw one stat that said, like, uh, you know, Obama was getting like 94 percent of the African-American vote and the Republican was getting like, you know, Romney and McCain, I think, got like around four or five percent. Interestingly, uh, Trump got like apparently 13 percent of African-American uh, males, males. Um, you know, uh, more than two to one what he got of, of African-American women. So that that does speak to that, you know, combination of, of, of uh, race and uh, gender uh, div divide there. But, you know, what I keep going back to is that the Republicans could not have played the race card. And what Trump was doing, though, what he was doing was he was racializing uh, people's uh, uh, economic and yes, anger exactly. over ec economic and social issues. That's yes. why I keep getting back to you cannot separate race from class, right? Yep. So, it, so Bernie said. So we had this divide, right? We we had two responses to the crisis of, of neoliberalism. And what Hillary Clinton was promising was she would continue neoliberalism. We had Bernie Sanders, and again, we should have you know, been more attuned to that. The fact that the socialist Jew from Brooklyn nearly uh, beat her was an indication of how widespread and deep this discontent that was not being captured by all the traditional uh, metrics. So we had these two different responses. What Trump was going to say to people, your economic problems are caused by the illegal immigrants. You know, so everything is racialized. It's because Mexico is stealing our jobs. Yeah. China is dumping their goods here. Illegal immigrants are taking your tax dollars. And even, you know, the Muslims are weakening us, right? So it, everything becomes racialized, but he couldn't do it without this material social crisis that the Democrats had uh, fed into and were ignoring. That's right. And but again, I mean, what what unites Trump's base? That's what I'm that's that's I mean, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying. But what unites the white worker at the plant in Indiana with the bourgeois, you know, business owner in Orange County, California, with the white retiree in in Florida? It is it, it's not an economic, uh, you know, shared interest necessarily. It's exactly as you were getting at. It is the racialization of any number of uh, political, economic, social, cultural forces that come together to create uh, white identity politics. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I, that's the term I'm using that I that I came up with. But I mean, hey, uh, whatever we want to call it, there is this question of whiteness uniting them. 
I, I well, here, here's the other thing. Because we have a two-party system, you know, in such a massive population, 318 million people, um, these are unstable and often contradictory coalitions. So whiteness can even operate very different ways. Uh, Trump's election of Pence was brilliant. Um, again, you know, like, so we all know that exit polling is not perfect. Interestingly, um, now this is not a surprise. Trump got more of the evangelical vote than Mitt Romney, right? You know, like something like five points more. Well, Mitt Romney was a Mormon and some Mormons couldn't bring themselves a vote for him. Trump got more of the evangelical vote than George Bush did in 2000. Okay, that's, that's a little surprising. Trump got more of the evangelical vote than uh, George Bush did in 2004. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> because that was all about turning out the, the Christian right base. And he got one point more. And so a lot of that has to do with, you know, things like abortion and, and homeschooling. And yes, you know, whiteness does enter into that significantly. Um, I think a lot of people, and I, I heard this plenty, just despised Hillary Clinton. And, sure. you know, n- none of us like her. Sure. <laughs> so, and, it's and so one of the most here, understandable if, things about the election. Right. So, 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 you know, there's some people who were just never going to, to vote for her. And, you know, it, it, it could have, it could have been, um, you know, uh, Satan, uh, who, who was running yes, and, and there's, yes. there's still not going to. So that's why I'm like, I, I don't want to overdetermine it. I get what you're saying. I would just, you know, say like, look, the history of the America is after all the history of affirmative action for, for white Americans. There's always been a white identity. Um, I think it's changed in different ways. You're, you're, you're right about that, but this, this is, we shouldn't see this as something like, New, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I was a kid, but I'm old enough to remember the 1980 election. I mean, that was such a racist backlash. And um, uh, just seeing it even in schools as one of the few brown sk- uh, kids in the suburban school that I went to, I was dimly a- a- aware of that. I, I didn't have the language to describe it, but it was, you know, this really this white identity. I mean, Reagan famously kicked off his uh, campaign by going to Philadelphia, Mississippi, where uh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman were murdered during the Freedom uh, 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 Summer in 1964. And, you know, this was the dog whistle politics. It was the welfare queen, the young buck, uh, you know, buying uh, uh, steak with uh, food stamps. You know, I mean, I was hearing stuff like this in, in my classes from history teachers, you know, it, so th- th- that kind of white identity and, and backlash is nothing new. And of, and of course, you know, same same with Nixon. Interestingly, the 68 election, it was, um, I think, Barbara and her partner at her time, uh, John, Barbara and John Ehrenreich, they did this study that actually showed a majority of the white working class voted for Humphrey. Um, uh, it was the managerial and supervisory class uh, that really went for uh, Nixon. Um, so there's often like a lot of misunderstanding about the the 68 election and that it was this just purely this like white working class backlash when it turns out it wasn't true. And, you know, I again, you know, we shouldn't overdetermine this stuff because uh, it, 
there was all this reporting about, you know, I think some good reporting from the New York Times in particular that kept pointing out. It's just like, actually, Obama uh, could not have won without uh, winning a significant percentage of the white working class. And, you know, one of the most interesting stats I saw about the 2012 election now, albeit this does cover millions of workers, so it is just statistically significant, the difference between unionized workers and non-unionized workers. Um, so you look at non-unionized uh, white male workers who voted for Mitt Romney um, and or voted for Barack Obama, and it was like in the low 20 percent, right? Then you look at unionized white male uh, workers who voted for Obama, and it was like 70%. It was this extraordinary difference. You know, it's, it, I mean, it, this is, you know, in statistics, this is just so many sigmas of, of difference that there's no way to explain it other than through a social uh, uh, explanation, and that is that class uh, class can trump race, especially if you have working class organizations um, like unions. Um, not that I mean, I think unions do a very poor job of being working class organizations. But but the point of the matter is is when you had millions of unionized uh, white male workers who voted overwhelmingly for Obama, that does tell us something about how class can trump race. I think there's no, no doubt. Uh, yeah, there, there's uh, there's a lot more to say to that, but uh, we definitely have to go to break. Um, over the break, I'm, I'll let the audience uh, sit and eat symbols while we listen to some music, and uh, we'll be right back and continue the conversation with Arun Gupta. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We will be right back. at your front door How you gonna come With your hands on your head Or on the trigger of your gun When the law break in How you gonna go Shot down on the pavement Or waiting on death you can crush us, you can bruise us, but you have to answer to Your front door 
Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Arun Gupta. A lot of ground already covered. Um, very interesting uh, to, to really dig into the Trump phenomenon. And I feel like we, I think that so, was yeah. that was that was a white working class backlash. Right there. <laughs> exactly. Or broken windows policing or something. Um, anyway, um, we're talking about uh, Trump and dissecting dissecting all of this and probably would need to spend hours and hours just going piece by piece through it. But I want to shift a little bit and talk about this uh, – this, uh, what can we call it? This incredible trauma you know, that liberals have, have gone through here. I mean their feelings are hurt. They feel dejected. And uh, the question is – what does this tell us about A, about the state of, of liberal politics, as it were, and B, what does this tell us about the failure of the left, perhaps? Um, any number of avenues for analysis, but obviously so many things dominating in the media now is really, I think, tied together by the the – what can we call it? The desperate need of liberals to explain what's happened and to cope with what's happened. What's your take, Arun? So uh, let's start with birtherism. Okay. Interesting. This is, uh, um, so <laughs> uh, Trump, there, there's a direct line from uh, the Tea Party, and I, I've, I've written a good bit about the Tea Party. Um, we, we should really see the Tea Party as, as white revanchism, right? Take back our country, Definitely. found yep. fathers, um, this idea of um, uh, this idealization of a t- time of racial um, gender uh, uh, purity. Uh, the white men uh, were in charge. And, uh, you know, we're being weakened. <clears throat> so birtherism, of course, is cray-cray, right? It, it, it is lunatic, uh, especially when um, there's some people who believe that Obama was, like, uh, secretly, like, smuggled, uh, <coughs> excuse me, secretly smuggled into the country and then groomed to become president. I mean, this is just, like, sheer, like, you know, Illuminati uh, levels of, of uh, conspiracism and, and even mental illness. So the thing, there is, though, a rational psychological explanation for birtherism, because after all, when a majority of a, a segment of the population, and, you know, there have been times uh, that were like most people believed, most um, uh, Republican believes Obama was either born uh, outside the country or that he was a Muslim. When it's that dominant, you then have to look for what is the logical reason. And the Republican Party has been stoking racism for, <coughs> excuse me, for uh, many decades, and it keeps getting uh, crazier and, and crazier. Um, and Obama should be understood as traumatic uh, to the people who bought into this narrative, because suddenly you have this African-American guy, this black guy with a Muslim uh, middle name, Barack Hussein Obama, is, is president. And this is traumatic to people's understanding of what is America. 
you know, you have this black guy with, you know, with an African dad, with a Muslim <clears throat> sounding name is suddenly the president of the greatest country on earth. So you can either kind of go one or two ways. You can start to question everything you know about America, everything you believed about America. And, and this is very important. There are multiple narratives, right? You know, there, there are people and some of these Indiana workers I, I met, America's the greatest country on earth. I mean, and they fully believe that. And, and that is so essential to their identity and, and being. You know, it's the greatest country on earth. It's it's never, you know, there, there might have been some bad things, but we always do right. We are the beacon of freedom and liberty and everything good in the world. And there are tens of millions of people who believe this. So Religiously, you, like scripture. Right, right. So either you have to question everything you know about America, and you then have to accept this, that maybe that different narrative, the liberal narrative, the left narrative is just like, well, no, this is a country of genocide and, and slavery. And, you know, we on the left want to reclaim this narrative of, of liberation, of resistance, of, of collective struggle and action, of, you know, shared like um uh sacrifice of the commons of of public goods you know there is this positive narrative that we can find within the american experience but it's very disruptive to this kind of image of america as you know the the city on a hill this religiously ordained entity so either you question everything you ever believed about America, everything you were taught to raise, you were raised to believe, everything about your community and about yourself, which is extremely, you know, traumatic, or you just believe this guy is a Kenyan-born Muslim, right? It becomes a very simple fix, a psychological fix, and it explains everything then, right? It's this guy who comes from the outside is weakening us. He's bringing in the illegals. He's aiding and abet. He's palling around with terrorists. It makes everything simple. You get this very simple explanation. And so this is the trauma of the right wing that, you know, that Trump brilliantly um, uh, hit upon, you know, that he really promoted the birtherism. And so we see this straight line. And you can also see over the course of Obama's presidency that the percentage of Americans who believe that he was Muslim steadily goes up. Right. You know, at first in 2008, it's only about 20 percent. By But by like, you know, 2012, it's like 50 percent of Republicans, you know, who believe this, that that he's he's a Muslim. So <clears throat> this is a trauma. Now what we're seeing is the trauma of liberalism. So since 2011, I've gone around the country. Um, I, I don't, I can't even, I'm starting to lose track. I think it's eight or nine times. I do these like reporting trips often for months at a time where I leave New York, go around. And I start doing this with Occupy Wall Street. I've spent time in over 50 cities, most of which I've been to multiple times. Um, I've got a better sense of, of America than I've ever had. There is enormous wealth in this country, enormous, especially in, in urban areas. And and one thing, and I've met um, thousands of people, know thousands of people across the country. And what I started to realize 
is I'm not sure if I know any one percenters. I might know one or two one percenters, but I know a lot of five percenters. And and that's households where the income is over a hundred and like sixty-six thousand. And I know hundreds of 10 percenters and that's uh where uh, the household has uh, i might uh, income of over a hundred thousand a year and the thing is for these people liberalism even a lot of them are kind of lefty you know left liberals progressive but liberalism has worked out very well for them right that the secular um ideas, tolerance, scientific, you know, pursuit of a scientific uh, inquiry, you know, that uh, the meritocracy, you can better yourself through education. This has worked out very well for them. Some of them might struggle a bit, you know, they might be cash poor, but that's because of their housing payments, but they all see their lives of, on an upward trajectory and their children lives lives on an upward trajectory and these are the professional well-educated upper middle class who is that is the really the base of the democratic party in in many ways trump has been completely traumatic to them right and so now they have to question that their narrative well maybe this liberal narrative isn't everything we thought it was right maybe this liberal narrative also masks like you know mass murder um in the global south that you know our um lifestyles is is based on this kind of pillaging of of the third world that we supported this president who was engaging in uh, an even more heinous foreign policy um, and uh, that Bush and, and, and Cheney were, that um, maybe, you know, we have created this highly strata, we're dependent on this highly stratified economy that are screwing over tens of millions of people who aren't stupid, um, who aren't knuckle-dragging uh, racists, and uh, who uh, are are worthy of, of being seen as our equals, even if they're less educated, or we believe Trump is an agent of Putin. Right. So this is so what we see is now we had the right wing trauma with birtherism. Now we're seeing the liberal trauma with like and we've seen this it manifest itself already. I think I've, I've tried to keep track, I think, five different ways since the election. So it's this complete denialism. First, um, well, we're, we're going to get Trump out of office by having an election recount. Does anyone even remember this? Remember all the um, hubbub over the Jill Stein recount? A year from now, you say that to people and they're going to be like, huh, what are you talking about? But for a few weeks, there was all this like, we're going to have the recounts in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, and we're going to get Trump out of office. That it was the faithless electors, that it was the Russian um a scandal then you know I'm, I'm forgetting one and now it's impeachment or, or the emollients clause right you know the the lawsuit the liberals are unable to accept the or, fact a, or a goddamn military coup Right. Or a mil. Yeah. Number six. So they are unable to accept the fact that actually there is a rational basis to the reason that Trump won. Um, and it's because your life, you have supported policies to screw over uh, the bottom 90 percent of, of the population. And maybe you might want to wake up to the fact uh, that there's tens of millions of people out there who are really hurting. And much of that damage is directly at the hand of the party and these people you 
he venerate like Bill Clinton and, and Barack Obama? Um, or you just look for these easy explanations, and that's, that's what's going on. And I don't want to, you know, equate the two, but it's so strikingly similar, um, the flip side of, of this type of trauma, that, that I think it has to be taken seriously. Oh, I definitely agree. And I think that the question that a lot of people are asking themselves is, what does that mean? Because when you say there's a trauma among liberals, you, you, you really mean liberal America. But liberal America's political manifestation has been the Democratic Party. And the question the, that a lot of people are asking uh, is, is the trauma that liberals, as, as you're calling it, and I think it's a good term, I think it's correct, uh, the trauma that liberals have, have gone through and that they're coping with now, is that going to have a translation politically? And uh, certainly, it, at least in my view, anybody who's uh, expecting the Democratic Party to respond to this trauma with self-reflection and with uh, internal transformation that, that, that really <laughs> reflects that is, of course, you know, I mean, ridiculously doing Diluted. Uh, so on the one hand, my question is, uh, you know, how does liberal America uh, eventually cope with this trauma? And then the second thing is, how does the left, uh, for lack of a better term, take advantage of this moment of trauma to break up to, to, to break off this sort of chains of the Democratic Party? Well, um, you know, I, I think it's important to have an, an inside-outside strategy. Um, I think, for for one, you know, I was of, of course uh, skeptical of, of Bernie Sanders, um, but it was based more on the fact, and as I pointed out in, in Counterpunch a, a, a year beforehand. Uh, uh, before the convention, basically, that the Democrats were going to use every underhanded means uh, to deny him uh, the nomination. I mean, that's that's obvious to, to anyone who yeah, who pays attention to how the the internal machinations of how these uh, parties work. Um, so, but you know, we have to definitely move uh, much further to the left uh, in, in terms of uh, politics. And, uh, you know, and we should be unapologetic about it. I think that's one of the big mistakes a lot of the left made in 2008, especially the establishment left, you know, that they just uh, lined up uh, uh, Guni Gaga over Barack Obama, rather than saying, no, here is, we're, we're going to analyze the situation, and we're going to argue for what needs to be done and we can say yes in in you know when push comes to shove it's probably better than he wins but we are not going to give him uncritical support we're going to this is what we're going to fight for and if the democrats want our support they're going to have to win it based on on what we're demanding and and so i think that's the same thing and the left has to be very clear about what we're demanding, and it's it's things like single payer health care. It's it's uh, uh, dealing with uh, the housing crisis that is you know again traveling all over the country. That is happening in every single urban area. Is a severe uh, housing uh, crisis um, because of just the huge amounts of speculative capital uh, that are pouring into uh, real estate markets. Uh, dealing with um, you know student debt and yes we do need universal 
uh, free higher education, um, pushing very much uh, strong social democratic, if, if not uh, uh, socialist policies and, and being unapologetic about it and, and refusing to compromise them away um, and not getting too caught up in the Democratic Party. Like, sure, yeah, it would be, you know, I think it would be better if Keith Ellison was the chair of the DNC, but I'm not going to be losing any sleep over it. Um, one of the smartest things that someone said to me during Occupy was elections are about moving uh, candidates. Social movements move the whole system. And that's what the Republicans have done. The right has done steadily. They've moved the whole system further and further to the right. Uh, I would suggest a Google uh, FDR and the uh, second Bill of Rights or the Economic Bill of Rights. Yeah. It's extraordinary, yes, right? It is. It, it, it's very simple what he was laying out there. He's just like, everyone has a right to healthcare, right? Everyone has a right to housing. Everyone has a right to a job. I mean, how radical is that? A right to a job. Everyone has a right, you know, to education, to retirement. This is way to the left of Bernie Sanders, and this was the president of the United States calling for this. In, in, right? in, in Madison Square Garden, in the midst of a fascist uh, surge, both on, in the United States and in Europe, and he was essentially taking the ground out from under the fascists, which their stock and trade was talking about issues like that. Yeah. And so how is it that we've gone from a president basically articulate... And, you know, he, he did it in left terms. You know, he's saying that, you know... Um, of course, like uh, civil rights and, and political freedoms are important, but you can't have those freedoms when you have want and need. You know, that that is, of course, the, the, the materialist analysis. I mean, it, it doesn't get much more Marxist than, than that. And I don't I don't want to, like, you know, deify F FDR. It's it's much more about what the you know, how far left politics were uh, 70 years ago. And now we see how far right wing um, they've become. But this is a project of the right and the ca capital that's been going on uh, for a half a century. We yes. didn't arrive there overnight. So I think the most important thing is that the left has to build unified mass movements that speak, that bring as many people along as possible. We need to be, we live in a capitalist system, so it has to be based on class. At the same time, you do not buy into this BS that we should downplay race and gender, right? Mm -hmm. Those, of course, they matter, but we have to understand how class is lived differently. You never, you never put aside hard questions because once you start to put aside hard questions or once you start to throw people under, once you start to throw one group under the bus, it means that you're willing to put aside any question. You're willing to throw any group under the bus, right? But we need to figure out what is the best way to unify it. And that is through a class politics that intersects with, with race, gender, and, and, and sexuality. That is what is uh, going to uh, really, um, I think, can potentially build a mass movement. Then it's, it's also, you know, these these unions that I went to, um, uh, there were a lot of, one of the factories was majority women. Um, the one in Huntington, uh, Indiana, the workforce there is is a majority female. So when we, you know, we should not equate working class with being male or working class uh, with with being white. The, in fact, now the majority of the working class is is female. 
Um, so these these questions have to be foregrounded, uh, but it still has to be done through working class politics because we are opposing an upper class, you know. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and break that rule and put aside these difficult questions here for a second <laughs> and um, ask you another question since we are really up against the clock here. Um, and uh, somebody in, in my own home is going to slit my throat if I don't end this in the next 15 to 20 minutes. But uh, <laughs> I do want to I do want to ask uh, this question because it is kind of um, raging right now uh, in social media and in I guess on the left in general. And that has to do with tactics and that it has to do with street mobilization and that has to do with uh, a number of uh, high profile incidents that we've seen recently, of course, uh, of, uh, you know, contemporary infamy, the punching of Richard uh, Spencer, um, you know, the so-called founder of the alt-right, you know, this uh, this this fascist who, uh, you know, peddles this uh, racialism, as he calls it, which is basically just racism. Um, and so that was one. And that, of course, opened up the question about is is it okay to punch a Nazi? And what does what what role does violence have in our movements and so forth? And then uh, even more recently, uh, what we witnessed on the campus of UC Berkeley around the uh, you know the the speech that was not uh, from Milo Yiannopoulos, I think is how you pronounce his name. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, the question of black block and black block tactics. So it's it's kind of I want to encapsulate all of that by asking you. What is your take on this issue of the the, the place of violence and of physical um, uh, resistance within the broader narrative of the left and of the left pushing back against this rightward lurch that we're seeing? Well, um, these so tactics can only ever fit into strategy. Unfortunately, a lot of the people who are are being the loudest proponent of black block tactics end up fetishizing the tactic as the end in and of itself. They basically end up equating uh, black block uh, property destruction. Now, black block can include all sorts of stuff, right? It it can include defensive tactics. It can, can you know, I've seen uh, black block successfully, you know, use shields, uh, you know, like garbage cans and you know wooden shields to protect against police attacks. I've seen um, successful unarrests. Uh, that that's uh, riskier, um, uh, you know, because if you're uh, unarresting, usually involves like uh, wrestling with cops and you can then get hit with a felony charge if you're caught um it can it may include though it's not just black block like actually creating barricades um for for protests to like uh block stuff up um but what a lot of it comes down to is let's distinguish that from the smashy 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 i was in dc on december 20th i was also in portland uh oregon uh two nights after the election where there was a lot of the smashy smashy stuff and this is just it's it's uh juvenile uh catharsis right it it does not serve any end whatsoever um in portland i was interviewing protesters, other protesters, and I would just go up to them. I interviewed a few observers and over 30 people, might have been over 40. And I was just saying, like, what do you think of all this? I wasn't, you know, what do you think of the protests? Just very neutral question. Every single person condemned the property destruction, right? 
And so this is a thing like the people who support this, they have almost no support out of a small part, a very small part of a tiny left. Um, it's basically those who are self-described anarchists. There are a few like socialists and, you know, kind of free floating communists who might support it. Um, but it's, it's a very small part of the left that supports it. So if you are, you've already lost most of the left, right? And this is a moment where we should be fighting to win liberals over to a radical analysis, and we can. Um, something like only 59% of liberal of Democrats right now support the Democratic Party leadership. So that means 40% of the Democratic Party base is alienated from their own leadership. This is what we should be taking advantage of. When you're smashing windows and, and, and uh, you know, Starbucks and bank windows, I saw this in DC, all you're doing is frightening the workers, okay? I was going in and out of cafes and in some of them I saw terrified workers. And you're talking about a working class area that is 100% African American and Latino. You know, some workers were indifferent, but I saw plenty who, who looked terrified. Um, you're not winning them uh, uh, over. Then what you're doing is you're opening yourself up to government repression. In D.C., because of the property damage, the police uh, kettled and arrested 230 people. They hit everyone with a felony riot charge. They could only do that because that is triggered when there's $5,000 worth of property damage. The same exact thing happened in uh, Seattle in May Day of 2012. A federal courthouse was attacked. That enabled the state to impanel a far-reaching grand jury. Things get triggered. When you create these shattered facts on the ground, you are handing the state the weapon to beat you. Of course they want to beat you, but why hand them the weapon? Then the second thing is you also create the conditions when you legitimize property violence, uh, property damage, and yes, breaking a window is not violent, but now we're talking talking about violence, right, because of what happened. There are plenty of videos of people physically getting attacked in Berkeley. Richard Spencer got punched, and sure, great. I love the fact that Richard Spencer got punched, but you have to look at the consequences of your actions. The, the, the black bloc mentality draws a lot of marginal people who are angry, especially young people. This is the FBI has a field day with this. They have got it down to a science where they send in informants and send in snitches. They essentially use these cult-like tactics to manipulate these kids, almost always young white men who are angry, who come from broken homes and, you know, are telling, you know, they basically, their informants taunt them like, oh, you're just, you're, 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 you're just a kid. You're just a punk. You're not serious. You need to step it up. You know, who cares? Oh, big deal. Window breaking. Uh, who, who cares? That That's like, you know, um, you know, like pussies do, right? Um, and totally goad them into building bombs, right? And where the FBI is supplying all the material. This happened at the 2008 RNC. I covered the Cleveland Four, um, which was an FBI entrapment plot in uh, 2012. Weeks later, there was the NATO Three, a Chicago Police Department entrapment plot. Now you have a Trump administration that has zero regard for bourgeois political norms. You have now put them in charge of the most powerful 
institution in human history, the U.S. government. They are going to run wild with this. But the thing is, they still have to bring stuff before a court of law. And, you know, as we see, they're going to war. We still do have at least a, somewhat of an independent judiciary. We still do have, um, you know, a rules-based uh, system, even though it's often manipulated. Why give them the evidence to put people away for decades? And I'm getting into arguments with all sorts of people and saying, like, I fully and I hate the fact I despise the fact that in a year or two, I know I'm going to in all likelihood, I'll be writing articles about young men who were snookered into entrapment plots or who did something stupid um, and uh, at a demonstration and are looking at 10, 20, 30 year sentences. And I'll ask add that there's one notorious uh, academic who I got into an exchange with who said uh, people should be using these uh, Berkeley. Uh, Berkeley should be a model uh, for uh, actions against police and ICE. And I was flabbergasted because this dude uh, who uh, was in the news recently for causing a firestorm with a tweet um, has a platform. He's got a big platform and he's encouraging kids to basically go engage in violence against police or ICE. They'll go away for decades. There'll be lives ruined if, if uh, uh, people who listen to him are influenced by this. And this is just the worst sort of adventurism. It's also voluntarism. You know, mass movements always beat tactics. It's spontaneousism. Uh, it's substitutionism. In other words, it's the actions for a few trying to substitute for a mass movement. We've seen this again and again and again blow up in the face of the left, and yet there are people still out there promoting it. And it's not that it's going to hurt the mass movements, though what it will do is it will help the Democratic Party drive the liberals back into their fold, right? And that is the worst thing. What we need to be doing is winning the liberals over. If we start to create conditions where there's this violence, where people are not going to come out to these leftist protests, they're just going to go back into the Democratic Party. And then when, you know, you complain about like, oh, these stupid liberals, well, maybe you need to think about how your actions actually end up helping the state, end up helping the right wing and end up helping the liberals. And the final point is also people are with the whole Milo thing. I understand that people were acting out of the best intentions, right, that they felt he had to be stopped. But this is exactly what he wants, too. This is his strategy. He, the right is now having a field day portraying the left. They're the fascists. They're the ones who are violent. They're the ones who are shutting down the free speech. They've basically taken what they do and have flipped themselves as the victims of a violent left. And so these are things I think everyone needs to be asking themselves and especially ask yourself, is, are these tactics building a mass movement, or are they pushing people away? And the fact of the matter is they're pushing people away. That's what the evidence shows time and again. Um, so I hope that people you know, will consider these questions before they end up supporting these actions. Sure, they feel good. When I heard about Berkeley, I stood up and cheered. But just because it feels good does not mean it's right uh, strategy. Yeah, I don't. I don't necessarily disagree, um, and I certainly uh, I think everyone who has any kind of a 
platform, whether it's, you know, wh- whoever you're talking about specifically or, you know, generally, uh, you know, in the media or, or elsewhere needs to consider, obviously, what um, uh, responsibility they have, social responsibility. At the same time, um, you know, first of all, there is, of course, a long history of anti-fascist violence in terms of confronting fascism, in terms of <laughs> shutting it down. And there is certainly, I think, a historical uh, uh, narrative that is worth examining to, to the extent to which uh, uh, violence or maybe self-defense is another way of, of framing that uh, actually does achieve some ends. And that's certainly an open question and a continuing debate. I think the second question that we need to you know really consider is whether or not um, you know this this sort of victimhood that the right is creating is this actually what they what they want in terms of being able to bring the powers of the state and state repression down on the left? Second question would be, is, um, is violence and political violence and what have you, does that actually achieve any results? And I think the answer to that is mixed. Um, it's an open question. Would the, would the outbreak of violence in Baltimore have led to the court case as it evolved? Would there have been that, uh, the indictments that we saw in the Freddie Gray case would, you know, I mean, these are the, these are the, um, historical precedents and contemporary precedents that a lot of people who defend the use of political violence will point to. And I think that there is certainly ample, uh, ground for discussing them and, and, and critically asking these questions. I, I agree, but, but this is, you know, I, I will say this is a thing that, you know, people keep, trying to subtly make this linkage what was going on in dc or or portland was not ferguson it was not baltimore it's adventurism um i understand what was going on in berkeley is a little different but at the same time there's a a recent um there's a piece that came out in in socialist worker and i know people are going to poo-poo on it but the writer who was one of the organizers of the protest makes a really good point a couple of really good points. It's just like, look, we had shut it down with force of numbers. That's when the black bloc came in. Okay, if it was just the black bloc, they cannot do that by themselves. The police would have swept them up in a few seconds. There were only like a hundred or a hundred and fifty of them. It was the thousands of protesters who had already shut it down without the black box. Right? This is this is all thing about tactics. That let's have a full discussion of it. It's just like there is no proof that it was um, the window breaking, the fire, that that is what shut down uh, the event. There are people there saying we had shut it down without that. Mm-hmm. Secondly, what it what it does is I've been in plenty of, of Black Bloc uh, demonstrations. And in fact, I helped um, to organize this protest back in 1990 called the Earth Day Wall Street Action, which is the shutdown, the New York Stock Exchange, uh, which that is one of the first instances of the black bloc in the United States. So I've, I've been familiar with this whole debate going back to its origins uh, in the U.S. And it's just like the black bloc stuff is really never 
you know, it's to say it has a mixed bag is, is, is being very generous. I've seen a few instances where it was like a bit tactically useful, but there's also this idea that militancy equals uh, these white kids. And it's almost always overwhelmingly white, yeah. um, you know, That's marching true. around, uh, smashing up uh, stuff, whereas it's just like, you know what? Black Lives Matter is militant. The no dapple water protectors, boy, are they militant. People who the valve turners, right? That's property destruction. They were cutting chain link fences. They were cutting locks. Okay. That is serving an end. This even, this goes back to the sixties. I, I say, look up the stop the draft week actions in Oakland in 1967 versus the weatherman days of rage in 1969 in Chicago. 67, you had all sorts of uh, property destruction. But the point was people were trying to actually physically shut down the induction center. They had mass support from both the white working class and black militants. The Black Panther Party had been founded a year earlier in in Oakland. They had 10,000 people out on the street. The tactics were all serving a strategic end. The weather, uh, uh, the weathermen, you know, it's just like, okay, it's these crazy, like, Maoist uh, wannabes. It was this destruction for the sake of destruction. It's propaganda of the deed. It's supposed to inspire the working class. It ended disastrously. And we see this time and again um, in, in, in the U.S. The FBI is now uh, uh, investigating uh, the Berkeley stuff. And you can be sure that there are now people who are going to find themselves on uh, terror, uh, terrorism or charges or these felonies that carry 10, 20-year sentences. And there's just complete disregard for the strategic outcome or broader context. And that's why it becomes a fetishization of the tactic that the only way, even if you believe that Milo had to be shut down. And I think this is questionable. He's not a fascist, right? He's basically a Rush Limbaugh, Michael Savage, and and Coulter type. He thinks that the system is uh, generally fine and that that's why the whole Daddy Trump thing. Richard Spencer wants to demolish the system and create a fascist system. There is a difference. I also, I know people who do the anti-fa stuff where they uh, confront neo-Nazis um, and Klan rallies. I'm, hey, I'm fully in support of, of that, right? But we we need a more sophisticated uh, political strategy and analysis, right? Not everyone who supports Trump is a Nazi. When you start to throw this rhetoric around and when you start to make these simplistic, uh, just grossly reductionist arguments that black block equals militancy and the and militancy equals property destruction and now violence, it's just like this is a game you are going to lose. You cannot go up against this massive state, this huge militarized police force, and also this scary uh, white, heavily armed white nationalist uh, 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 forces, and with like bottle rockets and hammers, and have any hope of, of winning. Um, this is going to blow up in people's faces, you know, unless they take this seriously. 
I, I will I will agree that there is certainly a, a, a much deeper analysis that needs to be done uh, about tactics, about these different organizations, or, you know, maybe they're not even really organizations, but, you know, tactical groupings or whatever. Um, unfortunately, we're, bit, we're pretty much out of time, but I want to give you a chance, Arun, to uh, just let people know where can they follow your work? Where can they stay up to date with all of the stuff that you're putting out there, uh, whether it's your Twitter or, you know, websites or whatever? Just uh, tell people what they should do to follow you. Yeah, I do have a website, though. I haven't updated in a while. It's arunkgupta.com. Uh, they can follow me at Arun Indy. Uh, the main outlets I've been writing for in the last year have been The Raw Story, Telesaur English, um, Counterpunch, Yes Magazine, In These Times, and The Progressive. But I also write for Nation, Washington Post, all, all, a lot of different outlets. Um yeah, you know, uh, but fo- uh, follow me at Arun Indy on Twitter, and and you'll be able to find all my stuff. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, hopefully, we can have you back to uh, follow up on some of these things and to even probe a little bit deeper into some of these uh, really important questions. Uh, and listeners, of course, thank you uh, for tuning in as always. And I will speak to you all again next week.